0: Wasn't having Brother Stewart here a joy last week? I enjoyed the opportunity to be preached to and everything that came with it, but I tell you, coming to this pulpit this morning, I am eager to preach God's Word. I'm excited about it because I think God's Word is great, and I think we have a great message to hear. I will say, though, as uh, I'm going to warn you, we're returning to the book of Ephesians. And that's good. No one groaned. This has been a long study, longer than I anticipated. I don't know if you've kept up with the way that I've broken up the message or the way that the sermon series have kind of outlined themselves, but I started by saying part one, the old you. And I thought, okay, we'll return to this, Ephesians, part two, the new you, and then we'll finish it all up. Well, that hasn't happened. Because then we came back for part three. What are you going to do with the new you and what's your identity wrapped up with and i don't know if this is part four or part five but we're finally coming back to ephesians chapter six and uh, i pray there's been enough time in between that you're not frustrated with our slow pace because i have to tell you the truth is if i could preach this book the way that i really want to we'd still probably be in chapter one there is so much depth in what Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and it's remarkable it's astounding because it's unlike anything that he's able to write in any of his other epistles for this reason he spent the most time in Ephesus he knew these believers he's familiar with them And their context was such that they had been developed and even matured while he was there with them. And so he's able to write at a different level in many ways. So far, we've seen Paul outline, remember who you were before you were saved. Don't think because you've come so far in your Christian walk or your Christian maturity that you can stand by forgetting the fact that you've been saved by God's grace and grace alone because you, like the rest of the world, are depraved. There's an unregenerate part of life that has caused you in all senses of the word to be hopeless without the work of Christ in your life. And that brings us to part two. You are now new creations born in Christ. And in this new creation, everything that's wrapped up in this, you've been adopted. And we talk about this wonderful truth that Paul would not have gone around to the Christian brothers and sisters saying Have you been born again? Have you been saved? Are you a Christian? Paul would have said, are you in Christ? And his focus would have been on that prepositional phrase. Are you in Christ? Are you abiding in him? Are you leaning on him in everything that you're doing? Because now that you've been adopted, you are a new creation and you're not adopted into yourself, but you're adopted into something even bigger, something amazing and astounding, something that Paul describes as the manifold wisdom of God revealed the church. Christian you are not saved for your own doing you are saved into the church And this church is glorious, it is magnificent, it is amazing, it is mind-boggling, it is intellectually stimulating, stimulating, spiritually convicting, it is incredible. And it's all of this because the church is the avenue that God is going to use to continue to bring His good news, the same good news that saved you, the good news that begins with, you are a sinner, and it ends with, saved by grace. And he's going to use this, this church you're called into, everything that's wrapped up into it. And it's going to be outworking in your lives in such a way that Paul begins to turn towards the practical. That our lives would be affected so much so that in our obedience to live as Christians within the church, living in submission out of reverence for Christ to one another, to the church, that it would also be manifest in our lives at home that wives and husbands would be distinctly Christian, that children would be distinctly Christian, that their parents would be distinctly Christian, that bond servants would be distinctly Christian, that masters would be distinctly Christian, that every area of our life would be touched by the fact that you are a new creation. There should be no doubt in any part of your life if you have been saved by God's grace, you are a new creation in Christ. You are in Him. There should be no doubt. But we get distracted. Let me take a break for a second. Because I haven't even started preaching yet and I've, I feel kind of fired up. Yeah, I got loud. <laughs> My car has been having some issues. I went to start it the other day at church to go pick up some some of my dearest friends and my car says and just stops and I went, well, That's a new one. That's been having issues for some while, so whatever. Oh, I thought of all the rabbit holes. I could have gone down to try and fix this because if I understand the problems, first of all, AC's been shutting off and I thought I knew why because the sensor keeps getting oil in it so it's shorting out because it's not actually overheating but it doesn't know that it's not overheating because the sensor's bad because cars are way over-engineered. Thank you. Anyways, why do I bring that up? Christian, don't you think that we can get caught up looking at Ephesians chapter 5 at how our Christian household is supposed to be laid out, at how our families are supposed to be structured and how we're supposed to behave at work, and we could think that that's the end-all solution to fixing every problem that exists in this world. So we move into chapter 6, in the middle of chapter 6 here. Paul begins... chapter 6, verse 10, with the word finally. It's going to seem like he's shifting without the clutch. This is a transition because everything he has written up to this point is connected. The end of Ephesians has a tendency to scare those who are afraid of the depth of of the Christian understanding. We do not go into this afraid. Because what it reveals is a greater understanding of what is at stake between wives and husbands, between children and their parents, between masters and bond servants, between what does it mean to be the church, what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ, what does it mean just to say that I abide in Him. Before we read this morning, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for the way that it gives us clarity about who you are. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, that it would be clear to us that we wouldn't be stuck wondering or just puzzled at what does this mean, but that you would give us clarity, that we would know your law, that we would have a heart that loves your law, that desires to know it better. God, I pray that as we read your word, that your truth would be revealed to us this morning and that we would know how to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. To stand firm. Finally, I said that these verses are connected because I want you to see that this transition, transitionary phrase, finally connects everything that Paul has written thus far. Everything that has been mentioned, especially in the sense of the practical application of what our life should look like in this letter, is a call to take up spiritual arms. Well, this is the greatest problem that we tend to face. We think that the we very clearly as Christians, like those who have car troubles and think that the issue might be the AC or the sensor or this or that. By the way, I had to replace the battery. It fixed pretty much everything. Anyways. That's how the car story ends. But I think Christians, in much the same way, approach their world. Well, if we could just fix the family, we really might just have a better world after all. If I could just fix all of these corrupt employers who exploit those who work beneath them, if I could fix all of these lazy, lethargic employees and they could pick up and do their slack instead of just being a burden on the company that they serve, well, the world might be a lot better. Well, if I could just get children to obey their parents, they might not run off and do stupid things. That's the distraction because what's really at stake in all of these things, the reason divorce runs rampant, the reason children are disobedient, the reason that bond servants or that people go to work and are lazy. By the way, did you, did you know that going to work and not doing anything is really the equivalent of theft? The reason employers exploit those beneath them. Well, all of this, if I'm looking at this from a biblical worldview, is a sin problem. Wait, it's a spiritual problem that the people that I'm going to work with, that the people in my household, I wonder if they know God. Instead of chasing the AC problem in our car, maybe we should look at the battery. Maybe instead of getting distracted on all of these things, maybe I should pay attention to what's actually at stake because Paul tells us, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, putting on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Finally, brothers, all these things that I've talked about so far is an issue of spiritual warfare. Oh, and it's prevalent everywhere. Because we live in a culture that teaches us that divorce isn't a bad thing. That it's not something that we should be heartbroken over, that we shouldn't be grieved over. Instead of living in a culture that says what God has brought together, let no man separate. Looking at it as equivalent as flesh being joined together. And looking at it as the dismantling of somebody cutting off their own arm. Children disobeying their parents, what, what's that actually about? Well, it's the picture then of all of God's people disobeying God's Word because we don't actually care about what He says. And why do children disobey their parents? Dana Lynn, i wanna, No, I'm just kidding. Dana is going to tell us all. Why do children disobey their parents? Because they don't know that they're not smarter than their parents truth is, you might be smarter than your parents. But you, the reason children don't, don't obey their parents is because they forget that their parents love them. I mean, that's the real lie that permeates disobedience, even in Christian living. That's the lie that we have whenever we live in disobedience to God. I forget that He loves me. If I remembered that He loved me, what? It'd be easy to obey him. Oh, and when I went to work, if I would just remember, get ye to the ant, thee sluggard. If I could just remember that God actually designed us to work. In fact, our bodies are made to move. And God's wisdom is seen in his design. We sing, How Great Thou Art, and we see that everywhere around us. We also see it in ourselves. Created in God's image, it's good for you to work. It's good for your mind to think. And a lack of these things is spiritual warfare. God's wisdom in establishing this church, being a part of it, contributing to it, all of this is related. Finally, Paul says... Because all these things are connected. Ephesians 3.10, I cannot stress this enough. I love this verse so much. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. These same groups that he is mentioning in verse 12 of chapter 6, these authorities, these cosmic powers... These spiritual forces, these authorities, have now seen through the church the manifold wisdom of God, this multidimensional element of what He has created, this weapon, this kingdom, this outpost for serving God exists in the church. And so we see all of these issues, and we'd like to get distracted instead of looking at the answer that God has already given to us, revealed in Scripture, which is authoritative, and so we should turn to it, that the church is the answer. What's the answer for a corrupt society? The church. What's the answer for weak men? The church. What's an answer for lazy employees? The church. And this isn't just pragmatic. I hate pragmatism. That's not at all what I'm talking about. But the real problem has been diagnosed for us. This question pervades. What is the driving question that gets us up in the morning? What is the purpose of life? What is the purpose then of Christian life? How many Christians have you heard say, waking up and going through trials or sickness or whatever it is, and they say, I'm just ready to go home. I'm ready to be in glory. Well, brother, I am too. Can't wait to be there but I'm obedient right now because I know that God loves me and He hasn't brought me home to glory. He's left me here. And I have to trust that he did that in a loving way. I have to put my faith that I'm here for a purpose, that there's a reason for me being here. And it's not so that I can be a coward in the face of political issues that stand in opposition of God's word. It's not so that I can be a coward to a society that doesn't want to trust God as an authoritative voice in our world. Finally, in all of these things, I obey God. My purpose is to be used by God. To borrow from the Westminster Catechism, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why am I here? What is my purpose? So that God can be glorified. So then, we look at this issue of finally, how are we supposed to face all of these different oppositions and these different things that come before us? Paul tells us, he says, finally, be strong. Here's the instruction. How are you supposed to face corruption in marriage? How are you supposed to face corruption in the workplace and everything else? Be strong, but not just be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Oh, we have to be careful to pay attention to those little words in the Bible, don't we? These prepositions are important. Be strong in the Lord. Now, this isn't just strong in terms of facing opposition or facing corruption or facing problems that are present. This is being strong in our faith. This comes back to trusting that God loves us. This comes back to trusting that He's put us here for a purpose because we realize that it's not our strength, one, that saved us. It's His strength that saved us. And because it's His strength that saved us, it's also His strength that preserves us, that protects us, that provides for us when we need Him. It is in the strength of His might that we hang on to all of these different things. And all of this is coming back to what saved me to begin with. Look how this is connected. I said it was specifically connected to chapter 5, but jumping all the way back to chapter 1, Paul gives us this picture of you were a sinner. You were depraved. You needed a Savior. What saves a dead person? Nothing. How can something dead pull itself out of a river? It can't. How are you saved? Was it because you worked up enough mustard and faith that you, you decided that you were going to accept Christ? Nope. Not even that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. You've been saved through faith, yeah. But it's not what you did. This is what Paul's drawing us back to. You want to know how to face these things? You have to put your faith in the one that provides for these things. Who saved me? It was God. It was by grace that I had enough faith to be saved. It was by grace that I can trust in Him. I was dead. I could not save myself. I am alive now. And so the enemy revolts. The evil one and this enemy, he says, I was unable to prevent God from adopting the saint. But what is the work that, he's at work that he's doing now? What is the enemy doing in the life of the Christian now? He is trying to prevent the Christian from living a life as a child of God. This is what he's at work doing. And in all of these different areas where our faith where the rubber meets the road in application, as it were. As we turn to the opposition or the things that would stand against us, we realize that the real enemy at work, the one who is pervading, the one who is fostering corruption and confusion and everything else, is Satan. Our adversary, our enemy, our foe, the one who's actually at work, who's drawing dissension and division in your marriage, the one who is at work drawing disobedience in your children, the one who is at work making Your relationship at work be a place where you are stressed and tired, contributing to all of these other areas. The one who's at work, drawing up public policies that contradict God's word, who is creating more confusion and indoctrinating young minds to a way that is purely evil, is Satan. here we are. God saved you. He will protect what he has created. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We have this promise that salvation, once it has been offered by grace, not as a work of what anyone could do so that no one may boast as Paul's written in Ephesians chapter 2 and everything else here that we have spent so much time studying. We find a promise that God is going to provide for us to stand us up in His strength. And this is the encouragement. I said that it's a call to arms, that Christians are supposed to put on the whole armor of God, that they're supposed to be united in this, recognizing that the war that they are facing is a spiritual war, so that they would use spiritual devices to combat this war, that they would pray for these things, that they would turn to God's Word, that they would pursue holiness. What has come of the church when we get upset talking about holiness? Consider this for just a second. This is the reality that we face. Christians today are more tolerant of sin than they are real, genuine discussions about holiness. I start talking about righteous and people get uncomfortable. I start talking about covenanting between one another and we get uncomfortable. I start talking about really submitting to the authority of Scripture and we get uncomfortable. But we talk about being tolerant of sin. Not practicing church discipline. Not doing the things that we're called to do as Christians. Tolerating this and that and being weak and fragile. This is the enemy winning within the church. We spend so much time getting distracted by what's going on in our world, what legislatures and politicians are doing. And we neglect the fact that within the church, We're more comfortable tolerating sin than we are being righteous. You are a bunch of mechanics who have been trained in the Word, who have studied it your entire life, and you don't know that the problem in your car is the battery. Who is the enemy? In combat, knowing your enemy helps you to know how to combat them. We know what he's up to. We know what he does. But it does us no good, my friends, when we look at this, to hate the world around us. When the real enemy is Satan. When the real enemy is spiritual. Christians, you think you are righteous because you call the confused friend and neighbor down on the road, depraved, and you, you think that they are the problem. You think the legislatures who don't know right from wrong, their left hand from their right, who are confused, who are like the people of Nineveh. You think they're the problem and you think you are righteous by being indignant towards them, by getting involved in Facebook fights and rants and posts and things that ultimately dissolve your genuine testimony. They are not the enemy. They're not right. What they say isn't right, but they are not the enemy. The enemy wins when your testimony is weakened. The enemy wins when your witness to your neighborhood and your community is so corrupted by your vile bitterness that people do not see the same love of God that saved you. Truly, when we start to understand what salvation is and we reckon with the fact that God saved me, a sinner, it is leveling in every sense of the word. I want to cry, why me, God? When I look at my family and the struggles that are happening around me, and I say, God, why not them? God, is it really love that you would save me? That I could spend eternity with you and have no confidence that my brother will be there? Is it really love when I can say that I've been called by your grace and have no confidence that my mother will be there? that my daughter will be there, that my son will be there. If we really understand what salvation is, and we understand how unworthy we are, why are Christians so bitter? It is not righteous to get distracted and attack the person who is not your enemy. Instead, you let the enemy win when you do such things. That's why Paul reminds us, put on the whole armor of God and be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil is the enemy. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Christians, you really want to fight a spiritual war, start praying. And you don't think it's true, I'll offer a testimony. I remember when I first decided I was going to take prayer seriously. I became convicted by the fact that most churches, when you call them, the pastor is busy because he's in a meeting. I want Denver Street to be a church that when you call, the pastor is busy because he's praying. And I have seen more spiritual warfare than ever before. If you're not realizing that this opposition exists in your life, I think it's because the devil's already won. He couldn't stop God from calling you, but he could stop you of living your life as a child of God. Oh, it's a dangerous thing to take being a Christian seriously because now the enemy has work to do because you're not going to do the work for him Paul, Peter writes, 1 Peter 5:8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is real deal. I don't say it to scare you all. I say you need to grow up. You need to know what you believe. You need to know how to be a Christian. You need to stand with confidence on these things because it's a real problem. You think it's okay to be a weak Christian wandering around in this world? Absolutely not. The enemy's not weak. The enemy's not passive. You think it's okay to be a passive Christian, though? Show up on Sunday, maybe Wednesday, that's optional, and do some other things, and oh... When the preacher asks during Bible study, what have you studied this week that you would like to share for us? The room goes silent because ultimately the truth is no one has studied. Why am I not more familiar with Satan? Well, he doesn't have to come to my church. He already won. We want preachers that tickle our ears. We want, we want sermons that are well-crafted in rhyme and have poetry built into them, with alliterations at every stop and every subpoint. Just so you know, preaching is an act of worship. I pray that it's edifying. It should be edifying. I think good preaching is edifying, but the truth is, God's called you to be edified by studying His word for yourself when we sit under somebody expounding on God's Word, it is worship. Whether it's good or not. And I do seek to remind you for just a moment, with all this talk about our enemy, all this talk of spiritual warfare, that the power of Satan has already been defeated in Christ. The cross ultimately has already taken care of every problem that we could possibly need to face. That doesn't mean that we don't struggle, because understand this. The power of Satan has been defeated, but it has not been destroyed. Christians battle, therefore, in victory, for victory. This is astounding. Spiritual warfare is something that we do already in victory, as long as we do not rely on our own laurels, our own ability, my own intellectual theological prowess, but instead I'm seeking God in all of these things, humbly submitting to Him, if I am strong in the Lord, again paying attention to those prepositions, in the strength of His might, in all of these things, spiritual warfare is the constant act of submitting to God. As my final point, I want to draw out this picture that Paul has given us of this Christian pilgrimage and ask what is this Christian pilgrimage that we're discussing? This progression as we move forward, standing firm in the Christian faith. Many Christians wonder and look forward to the day that Jesus will return. And I've seen loved brothers devote hours of trying to understand the nuance and comprehending the mystery of what it will look like when Jesus finally comes to this earth again. Mm One thing I've always been troubled by, these people that would spend time focusing their attention on what does the end of the world look like? I've always wondered, how could such devout Christians be so obsessed with eschatology? Or the study of end times. How could they be so obsessed with this? And I've started to think about it in realizing that there's so much that I don't know that I don't understand, that the reason is people would rather study something that doesn't have any direct implication or application in the now. So let's be clear about what we understand about the evil days that lie before us that Paul mentions. They're here now. They're not tomorrow. They're not coming. They are already here. It's going to keep getting worse. This is what the Bible tells us. The world will continue to become more corrupt. Being involved as an advocate and everything else and everything else that you could do and going on social media rants and being uh, hyper-political and everything, which is, there's a place for that. Maybe you're called to that, okay? But the church isn't it. More importantly than that, you're called to the church. And you can't do that effectively if you're not in the church. And here's the truth that we really have to grapple with. Here's the real reality. It's going to keep getting worse. What really matters? How many people will be in heaven with us whenever it ends? Am I going to be apathetic to the point and say that I've read the end of the book and I know who ends up winning this battle? And say that there's nothing else that I need to do? Am I going going to be burdened by the fact that I've got brothers and sisters and people that I love and want them to be a part of the glory that I've been called to? Am I going to realize that the real battle I'm up against is not something that I need to debate, but something that I need to pray that their heart would be changed? That I would be able to comprehend these wonderful mysteries, that I wouldn't be distracted, that I would be focused on the present? The Christian life is not becoming something or transforming into something. It is taking up what has already been given to us. In many ways, Paul says that in creation, as we've been looking at this and we look at the rest of Ephesians, this idea of being a new creation is something that is instantaneous. In the moment that you have been saved, you are a new creation. You're no longer that old self that you have put away. You've identified with Christ and His church and His body and everything else. You are a new creation. You've been transformed. Spiritual warfare, then, is not beefing up going to the spiritual gym, wheelhouse, so that you can be ready to do all of this. It's picking up what's already been given to you. This spiritual, uh, what Paul describes as the whole armor of God, these are things that are already given to you. They're laying at your feet. Spiritual warfare is taking them up then, putting them on and praying for the lost around you. I heard an interesting idea that I was not familiar with. There's this concept that if you put a chain on your relationships with people, and you say, I know this person and this person knows... And so you like think about all the people that I know. So all two of my friends, oh wait, no, we had Bubba, so I've got three friends now. So Michelle, Charlotte, and Charlie, so my friends here. And we put a chain on all the people that they know, and Charlotte's so popular, so she knows like 2,000 people. And so all the chains that she knows, did you know that statistically, and this has actually been proven now, which is kind of astounding, It only takes six links down the chain that you can be connected to any other person on earth. (coughs) You think that God can't work in the life of one Christian? You're fooling yourself. It only takes six degrees of separation from your immediate chain for you to be connected to somebody in Mongolia. That's amazing. When we look at the church and we want to systematize it and we want to corporatize it and we want to do all of these things, we want to be pragmatic and we want to talk about systems and structures that make things work in this world, I am pleading with you now, drop the pragmatism. The Bible has already given us an instruction manual on how the church is going to be powerful, how it's going to overcome wickedness, how it's going to overcome these issues that are spiritual. Pick up what you already have. Read the Bible for yourself. If you don't know how, let me show you. Pray earnestly. If you don't have a time to pray, set a timer on your phone. Don't let anything distract you from it. If at work you're frequently busy and you've always got something on, schedule a meeting in the middle of your day. Block out your calendar so that for 15 minutes you can pray. Be devoted to understand this incredible mystery. Because all these things we already have. We have righteousness. We have patience. We have joy. We have faith. I don't need to pick these up. These are already given to the Christian and lastly I want you to consider that as Paul paints this picture writing to the church in Ephesus to be strong to pick up the whole armor of God to put it on that he does not have a picture of an individual Christian doing this but he has a picture of a unified church he has a church standing up together to do these things to make a promise to one another that I will pray that in the quiet morning hours, I will be devoted to God's Word. And that as a church, because we covenant and we do these things together, that I know that there are other people in my church that I know doing these things, so that when I pray, if I run out of things to pray for, by the way, I don't think you will. But if you do, you can pray for the other people who are doing the same thing. Because this is the instruction manual. Father, the world scares me. There's issues that come up that scare me. But I've been distracted. You've told me what the real problem is and you've called me to a ministry where that would be my focus. You've blessed me with the ability to be your man. God, I pray that as a church we would be focused on what really matters. And I pray that your power would be seen in our obedience. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray, amen.